speaking with Matthew Harris, otherwise known as Mateo of Mateo, New York. Mateo, New York is a fine jewelry brand and also is launching luxury handbags this year. 2017 Vogue CFDA Fashion Fund finalist. Yes. So Mateo, he grew up in Jamaica. Tell me what that was like and how did it shape who you are today? Ah, life growing up in Jamaica. I mean, I think it was the best. Who doesn't want to grow up in paradise? <laughs> no, it's true. It's a fantastic little island in the Caribbean. It's centrally located, so it's really a utopia in my mind. Um, I had a great childhood, you know. My mom and my dad, they were separated, but I still had the best of both worlds, you know. Um, when I wanted something that my mom wouldn't give me, I would, you know, I was able to get it from my dad. Um, I went to an all-boy high school. Then I moved to the U.S. at 16 and I started making jewelry. Okay, so how did you get from Jamaica to New York with at 16? Well, I finished high school early. I think Jama the Jamaican school system, you tend to finish quite a bit early. So I was okay. finished at 16, 16 and a half. And then I started studying hotel management. So Jordan came way later on in life. I wanted to be a hotelier in my mind because, you know, it's a tropical country and everyone has a resort or a villa. So I thought I was going to go back to Jamaica and manage a hotel or own my own bed and breakfast or something of the sort. Anyway, I realized that working in the hospitality industry is not for me. So I was on a bus heading back to, I was modeling in New York at the time and I was heading back to DC for school and I met this random stranger on the bus and he gave me a book called Think and Grow Rich by Napoleon Hill. It literally changed my life. I read the book and I really discovered myself as a person and what was that burning desire as the book would call it, and jewelry making was it. And that's how Mateo New York came about. Okay, and did you always know that you wanted to start your own company? Yes, I've always known that. Um, one, I'm a crazy Gemini, so um, you, you know, you kind of need to work for yourself, I think. Okay. Um, but I grew up with my mom and my dad being entrepreneurs. Okay. My mom owned children's stores, and she was also a seamstress or a dressmaker, we call them in Jamaica. And she's always had children's stores. So I remember when I was younger, I would sell candy to the kids in the community because we had a candy bar in the children's store and I would serve candy to the kids and popcorn as well. So I've always grown up with entrepreneurs. Yeah. So obviously, yes, I would yes. Definitely, definitely, definitely have to work for myself. So did you already know how to start and grow a business when you started? Um, yes and no. Again, my mom gave me free range in terms of the store. Um, I mean, she did all the buying, but I would right. run the store, you know? Okay. I did all the inventory. I did all, I bought all the packaging and stuff like that. At a very, very young age, we, you know, we learned we would come from school and we would run the, the should we call it a shop? We would run the shop yeah. in Jamaica. Um, but business is something that it's an ever going learning process. You know, it's not a one-stop shop. You can't go to school. Or even read a book and say, I, I'm, I, know, I know the 101 of running a business. It doesn't work that way. I think I've made a lot of mistakes um, since I've opened this company. And I continuously learn each day, you know? Mm -hmm. Definitely. It's always a learning process. Okay, so describe the process of going through the CFDA. How did you decide to apply and what was it like from there? Well, it's a long story. Because okay. before I made men's jewelry, that's how the brand started. We made men's jewelry. Rihanna wore a piece and everyone wanted a full collection. So we did a full collection and we started selling to, I mean, we sold to over 20 retailers worldwide. We sold to Nordstrom, we sold to Macy's, 
long story. And it was called Mateo. Mateo Bijou. It's a different okay. brand. That was an old brand that we had, where we were even on HSN. Um, I met Stephen Kolb because I thought I was ready years okay. ago for the CFDA because we had this, you know, we had a nice size men's business. Right. Anyway, I met Stephen through a friend who's the he's the vice president of American Express, Walter Fry, and. He said, go and meet Stephen, chat and everything. When I met with Stephen, he basically told me I wasn't ready. Was that a shock? I was, How did you? I was crushed. <laughs> yeah. Because, you know, you think, okay, you're on top of your game. Right. You're in every magazine. He said, you're not ready. <gasps> so I said, okay. So I, how did, did he lay it was out a hard how blow. to get ready? No, he didn't lay it out. He, didn't, he just said you weren't ready. Okay. You know, and we were, you know, we were doing major business at HSN. We had a major business at Macy's and Nordstrom's. Right. But he said you were, I wasn't ready. But I felt as if when he said I wasn't ready, it meant in the sense of the CFD and Vogue, I was not at the caliber that I probably should have been. Right. And now I get it. Um, anyway, we shut the men's business down. We had shut it down completely. I moved to Miami and I said, I'm going to restart the brand and so we changed the name to Mateo New York and we started making women's finally. Um, I started doing something fresh and new because what I, what I was doing, no one was doing it at the time. That was 20, end of 2013, 2014. We were doing minimalistic jewelry, just great personal jewelry. People weren't doing that at the price point that I was doing it. You know, you can go and get Cartier, you can go and get Tiffany's and Bulgari, but no one was making great affordable personal jewelry for millennials. Mm -hmm. And I found that there was a, a white space in the market and that's why i think the brand grew so fast now the cfda i came back and i said i'm gonna open a store i'm gonna call steven i'm gonna say hey i'm ready so last year when i came back to new york i sent him an email and i said i think i'm ready and i think you'll be missing out if you don't <laughs> if you don't come and see, you know, where the, the progression of the brand. So Lee from the CFDA came and she met with me and she was, you know, she, she was impressed that I even had a store um, and that the business was it's definitely more refined. It's way more elevated now. Um, and she said, apply. I was still scared to apply. So my application went in the last day because I was not going to apply. I was like, you know, why, why would they choose me? Because there's so many designers in New York, you know, right. so it's such a privilege to even just be to be accepted. Anyway, we applied, and I believe two months after, I got no one a month after I got an email saying you made the first round. And what was it like to receive that email? Oof, literally, like mind blown. Yeah, um, I didn't know what to do. I literally started freaking out because, like, okay, this is really becoming serious. So we did the portfolio application now, which is the second round. Um, it just shows the aesthetic of your brand. It shows your lookbooks, your campaign, all of the body of work that you've done throughout the years. We sent it in. We did a phenomenal book. I wish I had it here to show you. It's so gorgeous. Oh, I love to see they it. still have it. Um, oh, shoot. I mean, we, we spent on that book. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> it was sure. not a cheap book. We did a campaign with a Jack Deng from IMG. She's like a big, huge model. Um, we did a phenomenal book, as I said. Anyway, we sent it in and we were waiting. Everybody was waiting on June to get the result if you made the top 10. So they pushed it a, a week further. So we were, we were all, you know, just biting our nails, waiting for the results. 
I was in Portugal working on the handbags and I got a call. I got, I saw a call from Steven, a missed call. And I was just like, okay, what is going on? So I called back the number and they're like, we're calling to let you know that you're, you've made the top 10. So I literally dropped in the factory in Portugal and just started bawling my eyes out. Oh, yeah. That's so that's how that entire application process began and started. And yeah. then once you're in the CFTA, talk about the different design challenges and the emotions. What is it like? Um, you know, everything is so fast. Okay. I know it's five months long, the competition, but everything just feels so fast. So there's a lot of pressure, there's a lot of stress, yeah. there's a lot of excitement. I mean, for a lot of us, it's a dream come true, you know? A little kid in Jamaica running around, who would have ever thought I would have been in American Vogue with Carly Class, you know? Right. Like I have a, a full page. Yeah. Like that's insane. Um, the challenges with an Instagram challenge, which I loved because all my friends came to take part in the Instagram, ch- Instagram challenge. Um, with a design challenge, we worked with another design company called Vaquera. I don't know if you know them. Um, so that was second challenge. What was the other challenge? We had so many challenges. Sure. <laughs> it was, you know, it was continuous. Then we had to do a fashion week presentation, which we, we did at the Roxy hotel. Um, we learned a lot because we've never had a New York presentation before. Right. So that was a new challenge for us. It was not easy, but we did it and it was gorgeous. It was in the penthouse at the Roxy. It was so beautiful. If you've seen the images, um, what else? I don't know. We met a lot of influential people yeah. that, I, I, you know, we went to Anna's house. That, that's number one. She invited us to her house for tea, um, for cocktails, I should say. And that was just incredible. She's really lovely. I, you know, everyone makes her out to be so scary. Um, she was very hospitable and we had a really great time. So how did it help your business? Was it awareness? What was the biggest? Uh, you know, I think Vogue validates. Right. Uh, the first and foremost, it, yeah. it gave the brand validation. It says you're a luxury brand, you know, and I think to get that little tick off is you can't pay for that, right. you know, and the exposure is great. Um, a lot of people don't know about Mateo in New York, so right. they're, they're now learning, mm-hmm. you know, so I can officially say we're part of the Vogue family, the CFDA family, which is incredible. And how did you learn to design jewelry and handbags? Well, first of all, the handbags, my mom is completely involved. Oh, yeah, she approves every sketch and okay. she tells me what she wants and what colors to use. Um, so the handbags, I design it, but my mom, she is the, I don't know, the creative director really in yeah, her mind because right. she calls me to, to co-sign everything. The jewelry, I, you know, I'm self-taught. So walk me through the process of designing a collection. Well, it start with a sketch and okay. I sketch anywhere. I could sketch on the train, mm-hmm. you know, I'll literally stop my meditation in the morning and like sketch. Um, I start with the sketch, then the sketch then is then send it to my team. They do a digital CAD mm-hmm. and after the CAD is done, which the CAD is really the end all of it because it shows the dimensions, it shows every single detail. Then I send it to my pattern maker for the handbags. Um, the pattern maker, they makes the pattern, assemble the first model, send it back to me and I approve it. Uh, and then it goes into final production. For the jewelry, it's sketched. A lot of my jewelry is handmade. We use um, a one by two or a 1.5 millimeter square wire. So if the ring you're wearing, if you notice, it's a square bar of gold. Mm-hmm. And that is all hand done and hand cut and soldered. Some pieces we use a CAD or a cast, but everything starts from a sketch to it either being hand done or it being 
casted, polished, set with stones, and then we have the final product. And where do you find inspiration? Modern art, always. Yes. Always okay, so tell me about art. your love of art. Uh, again, I didn't go to art school at all. I just, I remember I was leaving, I was heading to Jamaica, and in Terminal 4 in JFK, there was this big uh, uh, mobile from, from Alexander Calder. But at the time, I didn't even know it was Calder. Uh, I just thought it was incredible. Anyway, um, I said, what the hell is this? This is incredible. Anyway, I Googled it. I was like, what is this sculpture in Terminal 4? And I saw Alexander Calder's name. That was in 2013. I was like, I really like this. So I started researching more about modern art and just artwork from that era. From that era. Um, you have Kandinsky. You have, uh, there's, there's a new guy, Xavier Vielen, who d works, looks similar to Alexander Calder that I've just fell in love with. Um, so when you see the pearls dropping, it's really inspired by Xavier Vielen, mm -hmm. but it's also Calder because Calder started this whole mobile, right. you know. Um, but I just love modern art. I think it stands the test of time. And 20 years, 100 years from now, I think people are still going to appreciate modern art. It's, it, it will always be relevant. There's something, there's a timelessness about modern art. Unlike, you know, realism where not every day you want a lake, a painting of a lake in your house, you know. But right. I, in my my aesthetic, I would always want a piece of modern art over a piece of, you know, <laughs> something of a realism or a portrait. I don't want mm -hmm. that. So, yeah. That's how every piece of jewelry is inspired. Okay. And then the handbags? Handbags. Again, we want to create a bag that our one is going to desire and crave. And we believe there are certain shapes that are just classics that will never go away. This bag here is called the Elizabeth because I'm obsessed with Queen Elizabeth. She always carries a lady bag. So my mom and I wanted to create one classic bag that will stand the, end, stand the test and the end of time. Mm -hmm. We're on Elizabeth Street. So the bag then became the Elizabeth bag. It's just a classic shape. Then we did this very whimsical bucket bag. Um, it's really a bucket. <laughs> That's why I love it. I think it's so super fun. And the leather is fantastic. It even smells great. And then we wanted to put a sack in there. I mean, when you're wearing it, you, you literally, you, I mean, some people push the sack down mm -hmm. if they would like, because it's really, again, it's really a bucket. We wanted to make a truly unique bucket bag. And this is our first bucket bag and it's called Madeline. And I think she's super chic. All the bags have female names because I have so many women in my life at this point. So yes. <laughs> So tell me about the process of really teaching yourself how to design jewelry and finding people to apprentice with. Well, I got up one day. I lived in Brooklyn at the time. I was sketching nonstop, first of all. I was like, I want to make this. I want to make that. I was trying to discover myself as a designer and try to find a voice as a designer. Uh, I remember my friends would come over to my apartment and they would laugh. They're like, how the hell are you going to make jewelry? You never went to school for this. So... I got up one day and luckily New York has a, it's a big city. It has a jewelry district. I went to 47th street and I just started asking questions. I found a caster, Mike and Sons at the time. I met these Russian Jewish guys who made jewelry and, you know, we fell in love with each other and they had me come in and sit at the bench with them to see how they were soldering the metal or how they were polishing or how they were setting a stone. And I just watched and learned, you know, I would go every single day and spend about nine hours just watching them and learning. 
And then YouTube played such a, you know, instrumental role as well. Mm-hmm. I remember when I needed to macrame a bracelet, I watched YouTube how to literally hand macrame a bracelet. So I just felt like if you truly want something, if you put your mind to it, as cliche as it sounds, you really can achieve it if you go and do the work. And you had so many different ideas in the beginning. How did you hone down and really decide, this is my aesthetic, this is how I'm going to launch the brand? Well, we launched with men's. And the honest truth is, when I was making jewelry, I wanted to just make jewelry for myself. And I hated skulls at the time, and everyone was making skulls. So I was like, I will not wear a gothic skulls as if I shopped at Hot Topics. No. <laughs> so, so I wanted just like clean, classic men's jewelry. Um, I was moving out of my apartment in Brooklyn and a screw fell out of the wall. And I was like, why isn't this screw a necklace? So I was like, hmm. We took a man's toolbox and that's how the first collection came about. We made a zipper necklace that actually zipped. So it was very industrial. The first collection was very industrial, very men's toolbox, kind of very masculine, I could not, you know, emblems. Anyway, we made a zipper necklace. And my friend said, why don't you put it in the store? He was managing what goes around, comes around at the time. And Mel Ottenberg, which is Rihanna's stylist, pulled the zipper necklace. And then I was at home and I got a Google alert saying, Rihanna wears Mateo's zipper necklace. And I was just like, this is not even happening. Right. I literally freaked out. Um, and that was the start of the jewelry career for me. So how does making jewelry today differ from when you first started? Oh God, I was a mess when I was younger. <laughs> no, you know, you don't know, you know, right. you're learning as you go. Now I know about jewelry making. I know how to sketch, you know, I know how to I carve wax, even that I learned on my own. Um, I learned, I mean, I learned about gemstones and now we use so many pearls pearls i didn't know about pearls before okay um i know what a real pearl is i know to test if a pearl is real i've learned so much um compared to when i started so i have grown it's it's a bit it's a big evolution and then what about fine jewelry because you've also dabbled really fine high price points before this current company i did really high jewelry um it's very expensive to do. Yeah. <laughs> it's very expensive. You need backing. Okay. I feel like you need financial backing for that if you want to do it properly. Mm-hmm. Um, had a lot of interest from major retailers in the US, but again, the jewelry world is consignment when you're doing high jewelry. Right. Um, and being a young designer, we just couldn't, I mean, I couldn't afford it to do it in the scale. But we did some award winning pieces. They're hidden somewhere in a safe. They will, they will come back. They'll come back. They will come back. And tell me about the process of picking stones. How do you choose the color and where to get them? Well, again, this is where being Jamaican comes into play. Okay. I'm naturally drawn or national flag is black, green, and gold. So I'm naturally drawn to those colors in gemstones. So an emerald, I will die any day for an emerald. Right. I love black onyx. It's a cheaper stone, but it's such a strong, bold stone. And then yellow gold is my thing. Right. I don't think I make any piece of jewelry here. No. Is, no. I, I'm obsessed with black, green, and gold. So are you interested in working with different stones for Mateo New York? Yes. Um, coming soon. Okay. I can't say. 
We are going to be doing some citrine pieces. I love citrine. Again, it represents sunshine to me. Mm -hmm. I adore aquamarine and morganites. I want to use some aquamarines. I want to use some morganites. Um, but make it affordable still. You know, we want to make great personal jewelry at affordable prices. So the larger you go in the stone size, the prices go up. And I, don't, I want my girl to be able to walk in and feel empowered and self-purchase these pieces. So we have to find the right balance in using the gemstones and meeting the price point. So how do you get that sharp, sweet spot price point? Um, it's creating an incredible, desirable design mm -hmm. and adding the gemstone, adding the diamonds, but keeping it at the right scale to keep the price right. Okay. And that's what it is. Uh, yes, because, you know, when you go big, yeah. of the price goes up. The weight right. of the gold goes up. So we have found a balance. And then girls also want to wear the jewelry every day. Right. Long gone are the days when you're buying a piece just for Thanksgiving dinner or for Christmas dinner or a gala. Yeah. You know, my girl, when she shops, she wears it every day. You know, I think someone said she only takes her earring off to take a shower. That's right. It. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So... This is what we do here. We want our girls to wear the jewelry every day. So how have you learned to get to know your customer? Who is your customer? You know, I spent a full, well, now we have our own store. Right. And I'm pretty much here every single day. Okay. And that has helped the business a lot. Even helping buyers to buy for the retail stores. Mm -hmm. I know what works now because I'm here talking and having a dialogue with the customer. Right. You know, um, our e-commerce has also grown. So like I'm able to see the trend and as to how they're shopping online mm -hmm. as well. And I can check the data due to the analytics. Um, we've learned a lot. I've learned a lot just sitting in a store and meeting the customer one-on-one. -on -one. Right. Okay. So tell me about the process of opening a store. So finding the spot, signing a lease, picking how to design the store, all of the ins and outs. Well, New York is crazy when it comes down to real estate. Um, I've checked. I mean, I looked at so many spaces but when you walk into that space and you feel the energy, you just know it's right. Mm -hmm. And I walked into this space and it was the cutest little spot here on Elizabeth Street. It was perfect for us because we were a small brand and we wanted a space that was intimate. So when you walk in, you could sit like we're sitting here and again, have a dialogue about jewelry and you can feel comfortable. Even guys come here with their girlfriends and they, the guy just sits on these beautiful plush leather benches, you know, velvet benches right. and the girl just shops and dream and falls in love. Um, and that's what I wanted to create a, a, a really simple and loving and caring and nurturing and obviously a fabulous environment to shop. Yeah. Okay. So you're designing men's jewelry. You're, you feel that you're at the top of your game yes. and then you think, okay, maybe I want to apply to the CFDA fashion fund. So what did that, how did that go? Well, I was introduced by, um, to Stephen called by my friend, um, Walter and I went to Stephen all amped. Thought I was like, you know, the Beyonce of jewelry. <laughs> so... <laughs> I went to Stevens like I would like to be a part of the CFDA. What do I need to do? I'm ready. I'm in all these stores. I'm making all this money. <laughs> I was shot down <laughs> off my high horses. He said, you're not ready. Um, and it humbled me. I needed to hear that. You know, so I think sometimes you think you're doing so well. Mm -hmm. Sometimes you need to be humble. I think humility takes you such a long way. He um, said you weren't ready. And I took them, my notes. And I went back and I went back to the drawing board, you know, and I, we have a store now. We're sold in the, some of the best stores worldwide. I think that 
check that he gave me was necessary in order to reel it back in, clean up the brand, elevate the brand, and then come back. So then you closed the men's business. We shut the men's business down completely. And then we started making women's fine jewelry. The truth is I've always wanted to make women's fine jewelry, but I wanted to have a voice in making women's fine jewelry. And we finally found that voice in 2014, end of 2013. We made our first collection, La Bar. We took a simple bar of gold and we made a full collection. It was based on simplicity and minimalism. And uh, French Vogue featured it. That was the first feature was in French Vogue and then Wallpaper Magazine in London. And then every, every, in W was W Magazine, American Vogue, everyone else started featuring the brand. Um, that idea of simplicity and minimalism was not being done at the time. Everyone was doing big, you know, Lorraine shorts, carnival earrings. You know, we didn't want to do that. We wanted something simple and clean and wearable mm -hmm. and affordable. And we found that there was a white space in the market. And that's how we started making women's fun jewelry. And the brand took off tremendously in three years. Yeah. And so then how did you say, okay, now I want to launch handbags. What did that look like? Well, this handbag is the handbag collection has been God. Three years in the making. Okay. We tried factories all over. We tried factories in New York. We tried factories. I mean, we were just researching because we needed to find the right partner. Mm -hmm. And that's really hard to do in, in fashion because a lot of people make promises and then they never fulfill these promises. Luckily, we found one factory in Portugal. So we flew to Italy and we bought the leather from Mostrotto. And we flew back to Porto, which is in the north of Portugal. And we sat down and we made handbags. So tell me about all of the things that you endeavor in. They all are tied to jewelry. So the handbags, the candles, yes. the fragrances. So tell me about the fluidity of that connection. Well, I want to create a lifestyle brand. So the woman, the earring you're wearing, let's say, let's show that off. <laughs> See, that earring you're wearing, I'll get up and... This one? Grab the nude. <laughs> So the girl wearing that earring, yeah. she carries this bag. Okay, I can see that. You get it? Yeah. <laughs> so I want to make a life, I want to create a lifestyle brand. You should be able to come here and you get your jewelry. You should get, you know, your bougie parfum candles. You should be able to get your perfume. Eventually I want to expand and really just create a fully realized lifestyle brand. Handbags, shoes, jewelry. Who knows? The sky's the limit. <laughs> Exciting. Okay, so when you're designing candles and fragrance, mm -hmm. that's a whole new category that you weren't experienced in before. So tell yes. me about how you even decide started. Well, that. first of all, you have to align yourself with the right people. Right. You must, because mm -hmm. um, you will make mistakes, and a lot of these mistakes are expensive. So you right. can't. My mom would say, willy nilly, get up and just say you want to do something randomly. Right. Um, so there's a company called Firminich. They do. They they do all the fragrancing for people like, you know, Marc Jacobs fragrances, Vera Wang, a lot of the fashion brands. Um, and Ferminich does the, the perfume mixing or, and then I have someone from Ferminich then sends the scents to Arkansas. Well, the candles will be made in New York, made in Arkansas, and it will be packaged and everything else in New York. Um, you just have to find the right people. 
to align yourself with? I don't know if I'm answering your question clearly. No, you are. So how, let's say for Pearl. So how do you translate your vision and come up with a scent? What does it look like when you're choosing the different notes that go in it? I, for me, it's emotional. Okay. Like when I touch a Beel or Pearl, I want something very ethereal. Mm -hmm. So when you smell, and, and you can't describe a smell as ethereal, right. but when right. you smell or candle Pearl, you are going to die because it's, <laughs> it's whimsical. It's, it's this beautiful, soft, delicate scent that is just has a, a light florally note or black onyx fragrant. There's a hint of black currant in there and thunderwood. It's, I mean, you, I'll send you one. No, but how, <laughs> how did you get the, you know exactly what you want, but right. how do you make that realized and talk to the nose or whatever fragrance company you're working with and say, okay, I want these different things in it. Or were they suggesting that to you? They make a few suggestions, but I'm very precise and very, um, I guess, informed as to what I truly want from my brand. So if I say black onyx, I want something strong and robust, mm -hmm. but still romantic underneath it, you know? Um, and again, I'm working with very well experienced people. So when I sit there and I try to say, we want to make a stone, we want to make a, you know, black onyx into a fragrance or a candle. And I say, I want black currant and I want Sonderwood. They then come in and say, we need something else to balance it out. Right. And this is where they come in and just refine everything for me. Again, you have to find the right team. Mm -hmm. If you don't have the right team, you will fail. And luckily, I've aligned myself with a few people that has helped. What was your favorite experience during the Vogue CFDA Fashion Fund? My favorite experience? Well, obviously, shooting with Carly Kloss. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> that was incredible. Um, but not only that, I learned... I think the overall experience was great because I learned a lot about myself. Okay. Um, not just the business, about, uh, but also about myself and about, God, the tenacity that I have to survive. Because you think you're ready, but you're never really ready when you're under that spotlight. Okay. And under that pressure. And, you know, we all wanted to win. But beyond winning, you just wanted to be your personal best. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to be my personal best. So that was the best experience for me. I learned a lot. So tell me some key takeaways that you learned. Key takeaways, um, God, how to present your business in the right light. Okay. Because sometimes you, you think you are again here and right. you're really not. Yeah. Um, but the pressure helps you to really elevate and push. Um, so that's one key note to take away. I learned how to work with other designers. I've never done that before. Mm -hmm. You know, we've been a, you know, a one man show for such a long time. I did a collaboration with um, Vakira, as I mentioned, um, and we were butting heads. So you learn how to work with other designers to find a common ground. And we did a phenomenal uh, collaboration for the competition. So I, I, I learned all these things, you know, that I would have never known on my own. So what has been your favorite experience since launching the brand? What was that moment that really sticks out? Since we launched the brand, well, we're launching Mateo New York. Um, I would say both the CFDA. I mean, it's, a, it's been a lifelong dream. You know, since a little kid in Jamaica, I was like, one day I want to be in Vogue. I said that to myself, not knowing how realistic it could ever be. Mm -hmm. um, and that dream came true. You know, it came, it became a thing. So for me, that's the biggest gift and 
experience I've ever had since I've opened the business. But there's so much more to come. There's so much more to come, you know. Um, we're launching at Saks. We're launching all these great stores. So I'm forever grateful that all this is happening in such a short space of time. Mm-hmm. So eight new handbags or six? Six new handbags are coming. Six handbags. Six handbags are coming and they're incredible. Three novelties. We have th three novelty and also three very just standard shapes that are coming. And they're so special because they're hand done by a beautiful team of ladies in mm -hmm. Portugal. I'm going there on Tuesday. So I'm going to sit there with them and just finalize a collection. And I'll be back here in February to start showing collection. So what is it like going into a factory and seeing the sample? What does that process look like? Well, this is a big factory. Okay. As I was mentioning earlier, they do other great French brands there. So I don't know if I can mention the name, but yeah. Um, it's great because it's a. I have my own little team of girls. It's a okay. huge factory. But they've, they've carved out a little team for me. So when I come, I'm sitting there with these all Portuguese ladies and we're sitting there, we're just laughing and chatting and making the bags. And if they don't like it, I don't make it. Because I'm a, I'm a man at the end of the day. I'm not right. walking around with a purse. Although mm -hmm. I would like a Birkin. I'm joking. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I think we would all oh, like a <laughs> um, I'm sitting there with just these girls who are also really passionate about the bags. You know, and I, and I value their opinion as well. So if they don't like it, I don't make it. Every single bag that I've made, they've also given their input and their time. Especially coming up to Fashion Week, they work such long hours just to make sure I have the collection. So for me, that is just incredible and I'm so grateful to them because they do a phenomenal job and everything is hand done. So what does putting on a Fashion Week presentation look like? Well, I have never done it before until the CFDA. So it was very, very intense. But again, that's also something I learned how to run and do a complete event. We have a small team here. Mm -hmm. So I believe we turn water into wine. First, you have to secure the space. You have to secure um, sponsorship if you do. We had Perrier Jouet who sponsored us, the champagne company. We had Sip Smith as a sponsor. We did send us sponsorship letters. You have to invite all the editors. And you have to also invite you know, a few influencers. We have to invite all you know, our top customers. It's a whole process, but it all came, came together so beautifully. We worked with agencies that we've never worked with, modeling agencies makeup artists, it, it was incredible because everyone chipped in to create this beautiful event. So do you think you'll do it again? I only show in Paris. Okay. So showing in New York was really new for us. Mm -hmm. um, we are showing in Paris. We're showing with the Americans in Paris. We're showing at the Coco Chanel's old apartment. That's fabulous. Yeah. Look at we you. Went there last, we were there last season and I was there with that from first in Bergen. Cocational smoke room. It was it was gorgeous. Yeah. So what does Market Week look like? Market Week, God, it's intense. Yeah. My assistant is finally coming with me to Paris this season. Um, I normally shuffle about four days. I normally okay. shuffle hotel costs, but this year we're showing a Cocational's old apartment. We have appointments from all over the world coming this year. As I said, we launched Harvey Nichols in Saudi Arabia. We have you know that entire team that's coming as well. We have. Asian customers come in. My Russians are coming. We saw the Zoom in Moscow. And so it, it's going to be an intense week in Paris. Um, it starts, at, we start about, at about 9 a.m. And we sometimes we're there until 9 p.m. Because mm -hmm. um, it's fashion week. People are running from appointments to appointments. So how do you build brand awareness globally? 
for us, it's been word of mouth. Okay. It has been word of mouth, and also being in the right stores bring other stores. Right. Hands down. Um, but we do do quite a bit of um, editorial press, mm -hmm. and that has helped get the word out there. And we do a lot of online press. I think that's one of the most influential press coverage in order to get buyers because people, people are online. They're on right. their phones. Yeah. Um, so that's really how we get the word out. We don't do any advertising. We're not in that stage. It's a lot of money to do. And I don't think traditional advertising is the way to go for us. Mm -hmm. But we people come to us because we're creating good product, first and foremost. Right. And that's how we get brand awareness. So when you're launching in a new country, how do you learn to understand that market and what that should look like? Well, first you should, you, I mean, I try to go to the country. Right. Um, that's first and foremost. <laughs> yeah. to, I feel you should go just to see what the culture is like. Right. To see what the ladies there are wearing. So I'm actually going to Beirut after Moscow. Okay. Um, we sell in Beirut and, you know, you, ha you really have to get to know the woman in each country. Mm-hmm. Um, things that Americans wear, the French will never wear it. Hands right. down. Yeah. Um, cause Americans are a bit more conservative, mm -hmm. you know, and the French girls, they'll, they want it in their minds. I think they're being really individuals when they're really not. Yeah. I don't know if I should say that, but yeah, <laughs> it's true. Um, so I like to learn with the customer because that, that helps me to design as well. This is also, I'm going to Moscow. I want to see what the Russian girl, the modern Russian girl is like. You know, we've made gemstones and it doesn't sell as well like Malachite Onyx and Lapis. It doesn't sell as much as the pearls do right. here. Mm -hmm. But in Russia, the Lapis and Onyx sells out. They love a gemstone. Yeah. So it's good that I'm going to learn to see what people are wearing so I can truly be inspired and design for that particular market. So do you, when you know trends, we're obviously aware of what's going on. Do you implement that at all? Or do you try and just stay true to your own aesthetic? I try to stay true to my own aesthetic. I believe trends can lead you down the wrong so path. So quickly. They just yeah, go. So far. You know, we made our choker. Right. You did the choker. That choker was made way before anyone else made a choker. Okay. And then the choker became a trend. Right. Um... It's a long story about that choker. We're watching Downton's Abbey, my partner. Oh, okay, and I, yeah. And the girls always had a choker. Yeah. And then I was watching Kirsten Dunn. She was in Marie Antoinette. Yeah. So I started Googling Marie Antoinette and she always tied a black, she always tied a velvet ribbon around her neck and there was a bow in the back and that's how that choker came about. We launched that mode operandi and we sold a ton of it. Oh, I'm sure. And everyone is probably making a choker. So. I'm taking. Oh, so you started the trend. I see. <laughs> no, but I really made that trigger so long ago and it was stuck in customs. It was stuck in customs in Milan. It was stuck in customs in Paris. It was crazy. It was a nightmare market for us. It was our first time showing in Paris and we decided to ship the product. It was a nightmare. It was stuck in customs forever. And we had to send it back to New York. So no one saw the trigger in Paris during Fashion Week. And then we finally showed it to Moda and then we launched it. Then it took off. So where is Mateo New York today? And what does the future of the brand look like? Mateo New York today? God, that's such a vague question. We are a fine jewelry brand that is venturing off into becoming a lifestyle brand. I believe we'll be here for a very long time because we're making products that people want to have and it's affordable and it's luxury. Yeah. 
10 years, 15, 20 years from now, I believe we will be a whole soul name in America. Um, again, because we're making great quality product that will last and it's timeless. So what advice do you have for someone interested in starting their own company? I always say three things. Make sure it's your burning desire. Do loads of research and be persistent. Thank you for listening to the Delia Folk Podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Please go to your favorite podcast app and subscribe to the Delia Folk Podcast channel so you won't miss an episode. While you're there, leave a review letting me know what more you want to learn about or any feedback you have. Follow along on my adventures on social media channels at Delia Folk is my handle. Until next time.